Welcome to yet another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm W. Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. But every Monday, except when we take a holiday off, you'll find me right here at AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, last week we were off for... Labor Day, so that my wonderful engineer, Pam, did not have to labor on Labor Day, Uh, even though I'm sure she was laboring at home, as I was. Uh, I was actually doing interviews and screenings on Labor Day. Uh, But welcome. It's September. We're heading into, we are in the the thick, starting uh, with awards seasons, uh, season, and we've got uh, Toronto is going on Film Festival. Tell Your Ride just ended. L.A. Film Festival is coming up starting on the 20th. Uh, all of you know L.A. Film Festival is my great festival love of the year and has been for the past 25 years. So all you publicists out there, uh, I will be doing my annual must-see festival films column. But if the films you're repping have any chance of making that column, I need your screening links. You know how to find me. You've got my email. Hit me up. Um, I'm very excited about some of the films I've already seen that will be in LAFF this year. Uh, So I can't wait to see more. And we'll talk a little more about LAFF next week. But right now, i got to tell you, we have one guest calling in today, 1115, who is so excited and so anxious. Not only has he been hitting social media for days, he already called into the studio today. Decker... Dreyer. Decker is going to be joining us at the quarter hour mark. Uh, Decker is brilliant. He is a visionary. And you all know of my love for visionaries. And what he does um, is blend uh, digital, interactive, uh, lighting. I mean, it's, it's just, it creates an augmented reality, plays with that. Virtual reality, live events, filmmaking, brings it all together and this year he brings it all together as one of the the organizers and co-curators of Slam Dance Dig. And you all know, you've heard Slam Dance on the show for almost five years now. And uh, it is a fun, fun festival. It is a great event. And they've expanded their complement to now have, for the fourth year, Slam Dance Dig. And we're going to talk about that with Decker uh, shortly. And at the half-hour mark, or shortly thereafter, we're going to have an incredible new director, Andrew Rowe, talking about his feature film debut, Crown and Anchor. Um, I I am still, it has not left me since I have seen it. Um, It stays with you. It's intense, and it's fascinating. But first, how about hearing a little bit from Pierre Morel, director of Peppermint. You know him best for his work with Taken with Liam Neeson. Now he gets behind the camera for Peppermint, Jennifer Garner's new vehicle. And all I can tell you is, move over, Sydney Briscoe. Jennifer Garner and Peppermint, she will whoop Sydney Briscoe's ass. Hands down. Uh, 
Garner plays a mother, a grieving mother and wife, as she watches her husband and daughter gunned down in front of her. The And due to a corrupt system, the gangbanger perpetrators walk free. She then goes on a quest and disappears for five years, uh, training and turning herself into a lethal weapon. Uh, and then... She's back on the scene for the anniversary of their death. And it is look out, everyone, everything. But her mortal enemy, who she believes is her mortal enemy, is is drug dealer, cartel leader, named Garcia, played by none other than the wonderful, wonderful uh, Juan Pablo Araba. Uh, So... Let's take a listen to my conversation with Pierre Morels. We talk about action, cinematography, sound design, color. It all explodes in a good way with Peppermint. Wow, wow, wow. I, what you have done, this is by far one of my favorite films of the year. And not just because of the action, which is superlative and it's authentic and it's not CGI, but because this has a story. This is not a cut and paste action set to action set to action set. This is a story that resonates so loudly to the human condition, to the trauma of tragedy and shock to what we see unfolding in the world every single day. Yep. You have done well, an amazing job, Pierre. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you saw that, because that's exactly what I'm looking for in movies. That's why I like that movie, because action for action's sake, I'm not interested. And this one has a, an emotional journey, and you have to embrace what she goes through, and that's what I'm interested about. I mean, the action is fun, but it's not about the action. It's about her. It's about the story. And uh, that's why I liked it. So I'm glad you saw that. And, and what also stands out, it's not just about Riley's journey, her emotional journey, but also uh, what I particularly love, and I talked to Juan uh, Pablo about this, is that Garcia and Riley are essentially two sides of a coin. They are both very methodical in what they do, how they plan things out. But they and they are both yeah. immensely concerned about family, family, family. And yeah. he just happened to go, you know, one route. She's gone another route. And while what she's doing is as illegal as what he's doing, she expands from the single focus of for self, for self, for self, and starts protecting the homeless communities and actually becoming. An avenging angel, and it is it, to watch those paths and then see how they deviate, set against everything. Brilliant is the only word I can use, Pierre. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Thank you. I it. I'm blushing. I'm in, I'm in my car on my own. I'm just blushing. <laughs> I it just you know something so key in the construction of peppermint is your work with David Lanzenberg, your cinematographer, because something that, he does these beautiful cinematic films like Age of Adeline, but here you're merging the visceral nature of the action with his stylized lensing. So I'm curious, 
how the two of you collaborated to come up with the visual tonal bandwidth that we see because the film is very cinematic. Your night, your night shoots are exquisitely done. And there's no word for the pinata party store. I did. That's just off the charts. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great location, but it, it's fun because when I when I started like because I never worked with with uh, with David before we was the first time collaboration, and uh, he worked with Lakeshore before. That's how we met. Basically, mm -hmm. introduced him to me. But I, I saw all this photography, which has nothing to do with action. He never did action stuff, and uh, and I think like what I was looking for because action I can I've done before as a DP before myself, and as a director I've done all actions. Action shooting actions is kind of like not the issue. What I wanted was someone would bring a different image to what you expect in action movies. And his sensibility was exactly what I was looking for. So that collaboration was like, I, I mean, we had long discussions about how it should look. I wanted to stay away from what you would usually see in an action movie, which is sometimes overdone, I would say. Mm -hmm. just let him do his, his thing so that he would portray... LA, because actually we shot LA for LA, and we shot those parts of LA that we usually don't see, which is, you know, the gritty and the uh, skid row and the mm -hmm. homeless and all that downtown that people usually don't see in LA, and bring it to what he, what he saw in that, because that's, we don't want to do the postcard LA, basically. <laughs> so I think he did, he did pretty great, and I was so happy that he, he, he agreed to this movie with me, because he brought his sensibility, which is not an action movie cinematographer. Uh, sensibility and and we just did our thing together. It was extremely pleasant, and the result I was I mean I would shoot with him anytime again. Basically, we got along so well. I think those two styles mix really well together. Well, and and I agree. And you know what? Something that really stands out with the camera movement itself, there's a great lyricism and grace to how the camera is moving that really mirrors the fluidity that Jennifer brings to the physicality of Riley. I found that really interesting. Instead of going against the grain in shooting, the two of you went with the actual physical flow. Yeah. Well, that's, once again, that's what I try to do. And we didn't do like, I'm, I'm very instinctive. And so is he. We're very sick to photographers, I think, him and me. And we just wanted to not, like, overcut and, and like, have a, a action style, but just be as much as possible with Jen, who did most of the stunts herself and the fights, but also all the emotional things has to be, like, long, slow shots. You don't need to make it... If you overcut something, it becomes fake. Mm -hmm. If you fake things, you, you, the audience feels it. And since, once again, this movie was not about not about the action. It was about her. It was mm -hmm. about life. It was about humans. And I wanted to be with Jen and take my time with this as much as possible. Mm -hmm. How so dictated where we shot. And how beneficial is it with your background in cinematography when you are planning out a film like Peppermint in terms of what, be it storyboarding or shot listing, in terms of what you want your visuals to convey? I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm not a great, I'm not a big storyboarder. Mm -hmm. I, I, I use storyboards only as a tool to communicate with all the other departments. 
whether it's the, the camera department, the VFX department, the uh, stunt department, just to, just like everybody has the same language, but it's not necessarily what I'm going to shoot. <laughs> I storyboard stuff, and once on set, I do something else. <laughs> it's, um, it's just a tool of communication. It's not, these movies, because you're like shooting real people, it's not like CGI heavy. You you don't need to plan so much in advance where every shot has to be storyboarded. It's all about getting everyone to understand what the action is going to be, basically. Um, so in this particular case, that's exactly what we did. I mean, we did, I did like some storyboarding sessions with the DP, with David, and, and we came with kind of like agreement on what the style would be, but we never shot exactly what was planned. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we did it to an extent, but not specifically like shot by shot because we didn't need to. I mean, you need to be flexible. Like, humans are human, meaning that they're not machines. So you can't force anybody into a frame or a, a pre-established storyboard. You can do that with CGI creatures, not with humans, and definitely not with Jennifer. I, I would never force it to do anything because it looked cool. I just wanted to look real. So it does dictate the way you shoot, and it does go sometimes against the storyboard you have in mind. Mm-hmm. Once again, it's just a tool of communication. Well, and I, and I love the way you mentioned, yes, we're all human, and that's one of the great keys in this film is that even with all the action sequences, everything is within human capability. There is nothing that, that we see, be it parkour, be it, you know, whatever discipline is being implemented in the stunts and the action. It is all something within the capabilities of the human body. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, as a, as a spectator, I love the over-the-top action movies. Like, I love, like, Chinese movies where people walk on ceiling with cables, but it doesn't apply to this story. Right. Why to to this fucker mom. I mean, whatever she trained for, she would not be, like, walking on ceiling. So I think it's also very important because if you, if you cross that line, then you lose every every credibility. Every, you lose that moment, that, that reality. Mm-hmm. And you lose the emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got it. I was, I was very care- always careful not to, to, to choreograph action pieces that are impossible, that are beyond human possibility, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I really love about the your action and your stunts in here is that they're all within the realm of human capability. Yeah, yeah. I think it's part of the storytelling. Otherwise, yeah. you just lose it. I mean, I, I, I love the Atomic Blonde, but what she does uh, is, is fairly credible sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very fa- uh, fantastical, yeah. You know, how I, I've got to ask you about shooting the actual shootout in the the part the Pinata Party store because and that's something that really it furthers the tone. I mean, we open the film, you don't shy away from color. So often in action films, they're devoid of any real color. You've got your grays, your greens, your browns, your, your you know, your inky blues, denatured blues. But here, you have you celebrate the neon colors of the Ferris wheel and the fair in the early part of the film, yeah. the warmth of, warmth of Christmas, and then the eye-popping kaleidoscope 
with everything getting shot to hell in the party store that said you've got neon pinks and purples and turquoises and yellow and orange just exploding everywhere and then you carry that through into exteriors down on skid row with sun shining the you have a visual lightness and use color here that we don't normally see in a quote-unquote genre film like this well, that, that, I, and that came naturally. I didn't, I would say I didn't plan on it, but listen, when I was looking for locations, stumble about that piñata store, which I completely ignored. I mean, I didn't know there was such a store. Actually, I just got on this old block, which is down in Olympic, in downtown, where, like, this is rows and rows of, like, piñata stores. And I was needed by, by, yeah, by the, those crazily colorful, saturated colors everywhere. I was mm -hmm. like, wow, this is the tone of the movie I want. And, uh, and then, we, yeah, we tried to not go to the, the saturated trend, which usually you use in, in, in action movies, but go with that. Yeah, that's, that's Los Angeles. It, it, it's, uh, I don't know how to express it, but yeah, it has that saturation. It has that realistic color. Mm -hmm. it's, it's warm. It's, uh, it's lively. Not a dead place. And even even the, and I find that it took, it took place at Christmas actually helped because we we put as much green right as we could in there because it, it has to be Christmas. It's also part of the the horror, if I may say, of, of this whole story. It's like it is that moment we should be a happy celebrating moment with all those colors, and it becomes a terrible you know what happens is awful, like horrible. Right. The contrast between this horrific story and that like joyful. Red, green, blue, like holiday mood is, is collides and creates something. I I, I hope. Um, and all and also what it, what. It and there's still a little bit more of Pierre Morel, but you're going to have to uh, find out about that on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But right now, I am so thrilled to have the wonderful Decker Dreyer with us. Hello, Decker. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, I am so thrilled. You know, one of your partners in crime, Peter Baxter, has done, I don't even know how many of our shows talking about slam dance over the years. But you're talking about a very unique aspect of slam dance. Slam dance expanded to become slam dance dig. Wow. I am blown away by the whole idea of this digital interactive gaming celebration of interactive media that you and Peter have put together that extends the creativity of what we've come to know in Slam Dance into a world of augmented reality, virtual reality, interactivity, live events, and putting it all together. This is just, it's magnificent. Where did you come up with this idea, Decker? <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually uh, it wasn't an idea. Um, we uh, originally started about four years ago uh, under the direction of somebody named uh, Darren Williams, who was a, uh, a real driving force in creating the dig event. And, uh, of course, you know, Peter and the entire Slam Dance organization has been involved in it uh, since then. But um, really, we think of it as the evolution of, uh, of the film festival. Slam Dance is... Uh, known for the festival that we hold in New York City every year, but for 
the last couple of years, really, we've been approaching it as more of a holistic arts organization that um, does a ton of work here in Los Angeles. We have all the art life trainings that we do on a regular basis and really support our artists uh, year-round now from uh, programs like DIG and, you know, other things that, uh, that we're involved in. So, you know, we see it as a natural extension into what all of these creators are making in, in a variety of media. It's sort of the island of misfit toys of, of <laughs> festivals. It's like all the great um, digital artwork and interactive art. It doesn't really fit into the program of, uh, of Art Festival or really anywhere else. So we're very excited to be holding it. I mean, I just think the whole idea is, you know, fantastic. And you yourself, you are a pioneer in immersive media. I mean, you're a writer, you're a director, you're a producer, you're an artist. You create. You were creator of Illusion on Demand Network, uh, a sci-fi channel. Um, and you have always been known for bringing physical, digital, and non-conventional things together. I mean, and you're no stranger to slam dance. I mean, you had, back in 2002, you had your short film premiere there. Uh, That's right. It was one of my, uh, it was one of the first films. It was called Closed Circuit, and it was, uh, uh, it was actually a, a project that was commissioned by Max, and, you know, so it was kind of a strange thing to, to, to come into Slamdance, you know, that way as a, uh, as a filmmaker, way, way, way a long time ago when they were just starting to do, like, um, their online shorts and their digital kind of programs. And, uh, you know, I've really stayed the organization, at least, you know, from the from the ethos of, like, for artists, um, uh, by artists. So, you know, I, 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 I just am in love with what they've been doing for you know, decades now, and uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. And, you know, when we started thinking about how to expand the program for Dick this year, uh, I'd actually been involved with Dick a little bit over the last two years. Um, Darren uh, was involved this year, but, you know, a little bit of a, a, a different kind of reduced capacity. And, uh, you know, I really stepped up with Peter to, to figure out how can we continue to push this program forward. And one of the big innovations that we came up with is saying, uh, in the past years, we've really been heavy on um, gaming. Mm-hmm. And we decided to open this up to things like interactive theater and, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't normally think about in a, in a show that was traditionally technology-focused. But I think the, the idea of interaction mm-hmm. was really what I latched onto with the program. Um, we're seeing so many immersive theater productions now, like uh, Sleep Gamora in New York and things like that. And there's a whole class of creators who are using technology and combining that physical in the same way that I'm, I've been doing in my world. And I wanted to make sure that they had uh, a really great, prestigious platform, a good showcase for what they were doing, because uh, really there isn't a festival circuit that's geared toward this kind of work. So. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing that niche, understanding it from my perspective as an artist, seeing that there was an opportunity there, and uh, really providing the platform for others to make the kind of work that I'm doing, it's been incredibly rewarding over the past couple of months. Well, you know, and what I love that you're doing with Slam Dance Dig this year is you you have it broken down so that you're showcasing new and emerging artists, but also established talent and alumni of Slam Dance and the, the three prior Slam Dance Digs. But you're also adding in these great panels. You've got the folks from Digital Domain coming. You have somebody from Na- the creators of NASA's The Studio over at JPL coming. You are really, you're really amping up your game here this year um, to really blend 
technology and art together in a, in a new creative platform. You know, how, how did you go about culling down and developing the panels that you're going to be having? Well, the panels are something that Peter and I started talking about very early, and um, uh, really a lot of the panelists have come together from from sort of my personal network of living in that interactive, immersive, experiential media world. Uh, I've recently been exposed to the, uh, the studio at JPL, which you mentioned. Uh, this is a part of NASA that creates all of these great pieces of artwork that uh, communicate data that NASA is bringing in. And I don't just mean like, you know, retouching photographs and things from, you know, from Hubble or whatever. They're actually building these giant uh, interactive art sculptures that have like real time uh, wow. sound and lights and all kinds of things that are tied directly to live satellites. And it really is a blending of, of technology and information and artwork. And so uh, I actually have other friends who runs a place here in Los Angeles called Lost Spirits Distillery. Now, what do you think is connecting a distillery, a whiskey distillery, and NASA together? You know, on the surface, not very much, but oh, the Lost Spirits Distillery you know. has created this uh, Willy Wonka-style tour that's become very famous all over the world, where uh, you have, you know, boat rides and all this technology and different stuff that uh, explains their process of molecular distilling. So... I, I kind of combine these two people into a panel that says, you know, the art of information, how they're using art and creativity and experiential theater and all these things to communicate, you know, very high-level scientific concepts in an accessible way. So, you know, bringing that to both the audience and the artists in the panel seemed like a natural extension. We want these panels to be educational for, for everybody who comes, but at the same time, we're, you know, by artists for artists. So exposing more artists to to what other people outside of the artistic field are doing with creativity and technology and experiential materials. You know, that was very exciting to us as well. We want this to be the kind of program that, you know, people come away from and, and feel inspired. Well, and that's something that is so key here is that everybody can access this showcase because it's free to the public. So the public can go to these panels. The public can see the 3D exhibition of artists and their work. They can, I mean, all of this. That's what I find even more incredible, Decker, is that you're making this available to the public for free. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is kind of one of our other uh, things. It's always been free to the public because uh, unlike a film festival, where there's a, a very established audience and, you know, there's a system there. It's, you know, you go and you buy tickets and passes and, you know, you all sort of sit in a screening. The way that people experience the artwork at a show like Day is a little bit different. Um, a lot of it's very personal. A lot of it is, you know, one person can experience something at one time. So you want to go around and sort of sample all of the different interactive pieces kind of uh, at your own leisure. It's a little bit like uh, what Meow Wolf does in Santa Fe, if anybody's familiar with that, that kind of space where we really encourage discovery and play and kind of going between things. And, uh, you know, a program like that is something that is a little bit different. And we don't want people to feel discouraged by, you know, coming and saying, okay, well, it's going to be a certain ticket price, and then we get to come and explore. We want to be able to open this up and get as much exposure for the artists as possible. So really dig in the last couple of years.
years has been a, a tremendous platform for all these creators because uh, people are willing to take the chance and come in and, and see their artwork and uh, experience it in a, in a way that they might normally not want to engage with a artistic project because, you know, it's more of an open kind of a um, experience. So we really want to maintain that free to the public kind of stance. We're, it's sort of a tenet of what we've been doing. You know, how do you determine what exhibits what emerging artist, what talent you have exhibiting, and what they will exhibit at DIG? That's a, a very complicated <laughs> kind of uh, question. Um, it, uh, it really depends on, uh, on a couple of different factors. But I'll, I'll just kind of give you the, the rundown of the process for the, uh, the submission side. Normally, of course, in a film festival, it's very cut and dry. You send in a film, and people watch it, and then they they decide whether they want to program you or not. Uh, when you're working on something that's an uh, experiential show, you have to submit so many more materials. It's photography, it's um, conceptual sketches. Sometimes if it's a, a component that has an interactive game, we have to uh, sit down there and download a file and actually play through a game. Um, and all these things can be tied into every single project. So the process of curation is very, very time-consuming. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we all sit together in a in a group like any traditional uh, kind of film festival board, and and we go over the pros and cons of what we saw. We just have to take in more information, and then also use our imaginations to think about it in the space. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to bridge that gap a little bit, and, and uh, you know, bring our own sensibilities to uh, to what the artists have submitted, so that we can think about it in the space in the context of everything else. So um, you need a special kind of programmer, a special kind of curator with that kind of vision to be able to uh, to put a program together like this. And we had a bunch of fantastic curators this year. Mm-hmm. Now, how much space is all of this going to be taking up? Space is a very important... This isn't like a film screening where it's just you can just keep running films over and over again even if you just have one or two theaters. You actually have a physical space limitation. How much space uh, it will DIG be taking up this year with all of these incredible exhibits, displays, and panels? Uh, well, it, uh, it depends on each experience. Overall, um, I think the entire space is about 2,000 square feet, approximately. Um, not only do we have the exhibits that are uh, being shown, but we also have live performances. Like you mentioned, we have panels uh, outside in front of the old infrastructure where we're going to have food trucks and you know and that kind of thing as well. So we're going to spill over a little bit into St. Vincent Court. Um, you know, it's a, it's a substantial amount of space, and each exhibit really takes up uh, at at kind of minimum a hundred square feet. Wow! So there's a uh, there's a lot of space that's required. That's for sure. Now, you're going to be at the Ace Hotel and at the L.A. Artist Collective, correct? That's right. The main show is at the L.A. Artist Collective. That's at 630 St. Vincent Court. Um, it's a beautiful uh, space. It's a, a really cool historic little uh, alleyway right off of the main drag downtown Los Angeles. And uh, at the Ace Hotel, we're going to be having special performances of America's Beautiful, which is an interactive sort of uh, theater and found footage uh, exhibition, which is going to be really, really interesting. And what, uh, do you know, uh, what times are these running each day? And, uh, you know, and the location is perfect for public transportation. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we we had moved to downtown Los Angeles because we wanted to be a part of the uh, the whole revitalization that's going on there. Really, downtown Los Angeles has become a, uh, a hub for interactive art work, and uh, you know we think that it's a great place to to sort of put our fingerprint. So um, each day, I think uh, we're starting 5 p.m. on Thursday, which coincides with the downtown art walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting at 5 p.m. on Friday, and then on Saturday we're running from 12. Uh, p.m. to midnight every night. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Th- this whole concept just, I am just blown away by it, Decker. And the idea of blending all this whole experiential process, um, I just think it's absolutely phenomenal. And it's really taking creativity and artistic integrity into the next century, even. Yeah, we, um, I think we were starting to figure out what we wanted to do with the festival. Uh, one of the experiences that I brought to it was that uh, at a lot of places that exhibit technology, artwork, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, a lot of these things are tied to demonstrations of new hardware or software. There's a lot of uh, kind of corporate money that's behind these experiences. And, you know, there isn't really a good place for people who are boots-on-the-ground artists making interesting experiences using this technology mm-hmm. without that corporate backing. So really independent artists are being supported here. And, you know, I'm, I'm just very happy to be a part of uh, being able to provide that platform through Slam Dance for these guys. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to try and make it down there this weekend because I'm just fascinated by this whole concept. And having looked at some of the, you know, some of the images of what is of what we can expect, uh, it is just mind-boggling. So I am going to make a very... I will take time from my L.A. Film Festival screenings, uh, pre-fest screenings, to try and make my way downtown <laughs> for this. Um, Decker, this is amazing. You know, unfortunately, we are out of time. I could talk to you for the rest of the show about this um, and everything involved and what you, as a creator, do even when you're not doing DIG. Um, I hope you'll come back on the show and we can talk more about the work that you do when it's not, you know, slam dance dig even. Well, I'd love to be, uh, again, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for supporting everything that we're doing this weekend. We really appreciate it. Oh, this is just absolutely phenomenal. Decker, thank you so much. Again, everybody, slam dance dig starts Thursday night at five o'clock Ace Hotel, LA Artist Collective, runs through Saturday, and it's free. Of course, you got to pay for the food at the food trucks. Yes? No food. Right. No food coupons. Oh, Decker, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And give my best to Peter. I certainly will. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye-bye. And that was Decker Dreyer, Slam Dance Dig, this weekend now. Now... <laughs> Whoops. Whoops, I think we lost Andrew. Did we lose Andrew? Uh-oh. Oh, here he comes calling back. All right. Now we're going to move onward. We're just having so many technical issues today. Um, do we have him back, Pam? Let's find out. We're finding out. This is the beauty of live. 
Uh-oh, what are we doing? Oh, okay, now I can bring him live now? Okay. And now I am so thrilled to welcome a very talented filmmaker, and I am so happy I have now had a chance to see his work. Andrew Rowe, welcome to Behind the Lens. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Andrew, crown and anchor, I was riveted. It is smoldering. It is a slow burn. It is an amazing character study of two individuals and a very specific community. You've actually got a three-pronged character study here with the community being a study of its own. And the performances that come from your two lead actors, Michael Rowe and Matt Wells, um, are amazing. Michael, of course, is just... His intensity, his... He is riveting as he is stoic, he is calm, he is quiet. He is very unemotional to the emotion that's happening around him. And it is just, it, it gives you chills watching Michael in this, in this film. I mean, really wonderful, wonderful job on the entire film, Andrew. Thank you so much. It's so great to hear you know, tell tell all the listeners, tell them what Crown and Anchor is about. And a big thing that I want to know is uh, the whole tie-in of how you selected punk music uh, as part of the track <laughs> for this story. Yeah. Uh, well, it was a way to figure out the characters. Uh, because I was trying to figure out who these two people were way back into their lives so that I could kind of write and have them be um, just kind of talking to me. Mm-hmm. And I I just one day it hit me that they would be in the punk scene. It just made sense and kind of had two different ways of of having that punk music manifest. There's, there's two different, you know, there's different tracks of punk music. One is messy and you drink a lot. And the other one is, you know, straight edge and you don't drink and, you know, very buttoned up. And I just thought that was a great way to get into the characters and, and kind of have a score to the to the film. So it really helped with writing, and then it really helped with editing, too. You know, how did you go about developing the actual story? Because here we have Jimmy, who is a cop, Danny, who, as we see him, he's gotten into drugs, he's dealing, he is a mess, he is a train wreck. But it is the past that has you know, determined who the the paths that these two guys have gone down. And you really set up, there are two sides of a coin, really, uh, as you tell this yeah. story. So I'm curious how you went about developing them and creating the world in which they live, this community that they live in. Because you have a very timeless kind of mobster sensibility to it. Yeah, well, we wanted to make the film where we, we all grew up, which was St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. And I kind of wanted that place to just seep into the story. And uh, as far as them being two sides of the same coin, that was something I've always wanted to do, have two people who are kind of opposites, but also they're halves of the same person. And so I really wanted to explore what happens when two different people kind of express childhood trauma in two different ways and how it kind of never goes away. 
and it clouds everything you do in the past is always pushing up on your presence. Mm-hmm. And that was something I'd always wanted to write, and this seemed like the perfect chance to do that. Mm-hmm. How challenging was it developing these characters? Because it's not just about Jimmy and Danny. You've got, you know, Jimmy's father, Gus, played by the amazing Stephen McCaddy. Um, then you bring oh, in, so good. then you bring in Robert Joy, who has been around forever and ever. I mean, I remember when he was doing bit parts back on Moonlighting with uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. Um, so yeah, he was in Suddenly Seeking Susan, right? Uh, I, he may have been, but I mean, he's done. He's been on just about every cop show known to mankind. He's been on Alias. He's done comedy. Everybody loves Raymond. Same thing with McHattie. I mean, McHattie goes all the way back to I remember when he did Beauty and the Beast with Ron Perlman uh, back in the nineties, right. you know, eighty nine or so. And but then he's done comedy, Seinfeld, and then he's done dramas, Walker, Texas Ranger, played opposite Selleck in Jesse Stone. And then, of course, my favorite performance of McHattie's was the film Pontypool, which is just, that blew my mind. Oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. my. I saw that 10 years ago um, before, while it was still fresh on, just before it got um, distribution deal. And that blew my mind. I was forever a, a Stephen McHattie fan. I, don't, I was already a fan. Oh, after, he's, he's amazing. Ah. Uh, but you get all these guys and you give every one of these characters such depth nobody is just in the periphery you fully develop all of your supporting players as well and that's rare to see so i'm curious how challenging it was for you to not just develop so succinctly jimmy and danny but then doug gus and all the other characters that make up this world yeah it was about Mapping out the whole family's history and figuring out what had happened throughout these past two generations and how everybody related to each other, just so that I could focus on the two leads. But I had to understand why they were the way they were, and so I had to understand the people in their lives. And so it was really about mapping out this huge history. There was enough stuff to make a TV series, really, that I had to kind of like think of. But then I had to kind of funnel it into just uh, hinting at a lot of it. But mm-hmm. but it did give a lot of depth, so that it worked out that way. Now you were, it was always your intent to direct this, correct? Yes. So as you were writing, I'm curious: were you also designing your visuals in your head or storyboarding alongside? Because your visuals are absolutely gorgeous. What you and your cinematographer Adam Penny <laughs> do, you've got color, you have texture. So often in a film like this, that is a character study set in a world like this, we don't have rich color. You use a lot of golden hues, um, you know, reds, golds, um, yellows that really pop in certain instances. So, you know, were you thinking of this visual design while you were writing this or did that come later? Yeah. Uh, it would. It didn't come right away, but after I finished the script and I started thinking about how I would have to make it, it kind of dawned on me to have this very claustrophobic uh, framing and, and cinematography so that there wasn't a lot of wide shots. You were always right next to people. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would give an immediacy and also give attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that worked out. But and then it, 
then it was just a matter of kind of just you just make a bunch of choices when you're on set and you try to you try to figure out what belongs in the shot, what doesn't. I don't really storyboard. I more so make notes about kinds of shots. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it's just about getting there and just seeing on the day what's happening and you kind of trust your gut. Well, uh, But, yeah, it was always going to be really claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't feel claustrophobic. You You have it to the point and, you know, your editing is really well done to keep this slow burn going. But you never really feel, there are moments you feel like you want to escape, but then the performances are so riveting, you don't want to look away and you don't want to leave. And I found that yeah, to be very, it wasn't very about, interesting. Yeah, it wasn't about making the audience feel claustrophobic. It was kind of about figuring out a way to visually accentuate the characters. Mm-hmm. And they're trapped by their genetics and by their circumstances, and, and Danny's case where he lives on an island. And so it's just about having the visuals suit the characters, because mm-hmm. the characters are driving the story. And so that's kind of where it came from. And it wasn't meant to make the audience feel any more trapped or claustrophobic. It was just a, ma- a matter of making it super focused on these two characters so mm-hmm. that you're really in their world. Because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen plenty of movies where the claustrophobia for the characters it osmotically transfers to the audience in so many cases. And here it doesn't. It's just, you're so riveted into into these yeah. characters that there's never an opportunity. That never happens. And that, I think, is really, uh, that's a testament to your skill, to Adam's skill. And, you know, your skill not only as a director, but as an editor, um, that you were yeah, able to create you. that. You know, I'm curious, was it a help or a hindrance being the editor? How precious were you with, <laughs> with what was happening with your words and with your shots? Yeah, yeah. It's tough because it's that, old, it's that old thing where it's hard to read the label when you're inside the bottle. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but... Uh, I'm open to, to feedback, showing people certain things. And, and I, I tried working with editor one time on, a, on short films. I edited all my stuff, and then on my last short film, I tried to work with an editor, and I just ended up taking it and cutting it all myself anyway, and I felt bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like I guess I just have to be the editor on everything I make now because I'm so specific that it, it's just a waste of time for me to be telling people, do a cut here, do this, do that. Like, they're not allowed to be free, so... It's it's got to be me, I guess. <laughs> Did that help you or not while you were shooting? Um, you know, because Tyler Perry has his insane manner of working, and because you know he's he's editing, he's directing, he's in it. It's like when something happens, he can capture it, and he knows in his mind where he's already going, where he's going to be cutting, and sometimes he can shave off, okay, now I don't need to do this scene that I was going to do because in his mind he already knows, okay, I can cut here, I can do this, I can do that. Were you experiencing any of that? Knowing, you know, Was that yeah. informing you as you were actually in the thick of it directing? Yes, because we only had 15 days to shoot the movie. And so there was sometimes where we'd shoot a scene from a certain angle and we'd only shoot half the scene because I knew I'm not going to ever show this angle for the other part of the scene. Like, I'm already editing in my mind. And right. there was other things, too, where it'd be like, you know, we're going to shoot 
just this one little bit here, and then we're going to put the camera here and catch the next bit. So that I had to really save time. So it did help that way because I'm pretty sure if an editor had gotten the footage I shot, they would have thought I had no idea how to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you shoot this in chronological order or did you bounce around? No, it was all bounced around based on availability of the actors. So the first week we shot everything with Natalie Brown, who plays Jessica, and she's great in it. And we did all of her stuff the first week. And then it felt, that felt like we'd made it our own movie about that family, right? Because mm -hmm. she felt like almost like the star because she was in everything we shot that week and then she was gone. And we had to start picking up other stuff based on when McCaddy could come and, and Robert Joy's availability. So it was really all over the place. And it's uh, kind of a miracle it came together as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I find really interesting is that most filmmakers, when they're up in uh, Newfoundland, they're up in British Columbia, they take advantage of the beautiful scenery up there. You didn't. You don't. We don't have those, the expected lush exteriors or vistas that we're so used to seeing from filmmakers who go up, you know, to your home and, you know, where you are and shoot. So I'm curious, you know, was, does it not, does the vistas not impress you anymore since you grew up there or... <laughs> No, they impress me more now because I moved away, right? When you leave and you go back, you go, wow, I grew up with all this beauty. It's, I never, I took it for granted when I just, it was my every day. But the thing was, I, I've i seen a lot of the things that have been filmed there, and they all look the same. And I, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to do something that was just very different and didn't fall into any of the cliches of, of things that get filmed there. I didn't ever want to see the ocean because that's always shown and everything made there you see the beautiful cliffs and the yep. oceans and and uh, i just didn't want any of that i i just wanted to show people that you can do different types of stories there i, I wanted people who live there to feel like they could film other kinds of stories and i wanted people who maybe were thinking about going there to not think they had to to do it that way that that you can have the place seep in and give a texture that's very different than what we're used to seeing mm-hmm well, and by shooting it the way you did and by not including, by excluding the known beauty of the region, you may, you give it a very anywhere feeling that this story could be unfolding in any town, anywhere. Yeah. You know, so you have a timelessness to it, but also a geographic, you know, brown bag sensibility there's texture but it can be texture from anywhere it could be from des moines iowa or kansas city um you know or somewhere down in louisiana in the bayou i really like yeah. that because it really you don't pigeonhole yourself and you know anybody can connect it will resonate on that level with anybody watching it yeah it, it was a very universal thing. I mean, dealing with family, I think it's it's every family has to some degree or another, you know, levels of trauma or, or its issues. And so I think it's a extremely universal story. Um, also, you know, the the idea of, of toxic masculinity and the problems associated with, you know, how culture views manhood and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's everywhere too. And uh I I just 
I'm so pleased that so many people everywhere seem to be able to relate to it and are getting things from it. And uh, a lot of people have said to me, they've, they've thought back on people they knew in their life and, and what kind of family they came from and why maybe they behaved a certain way. Is, and it's kind of having people have a little more empathy. And that's what movies can do. And I was hoping that my movie could, could kind of trigger that in people. And to hear feedback like that is amazing. Mm. Well, I've got to ask you about your casting. Particularly, some guy named Michael Rowe. Um, you know uh, what? What led you to him, and uh, who plays Jimmy, and of course, then Matt Wells, who plays Danny. Well, they brought the movie to me as an uh, kind of like a concept of something they were trying to do together as actors. Michael's my brother, and Matt is his best friend. I've known Matt since I was about eleven years old. And uh, they, Matt had been writing a script for a long time, about two years, dealing with his own family issues from his mother's side of the family. And uh, he showed it to me for notes, and, he, and I gave him a lot of things that I thought he could work on with it. And he kind of went away and talked to Michael about it. And Michael said, why don't you let Andrew like, like take a crack writing it from scratch and, and just tell him what you wanted to do and then, then see how that goes. And, and thank God he let me do that. And, uh, you know, about the one of the key things was I had to have two characters that they could play because they had been developing it to have decent acting roles. It's so hard to get roles as an actor that you're excited by. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to write to, to what I knew about them, you know, Michael's, Michael's intensity and, and certain things about him that I know, having known him my whole life, and, and certain things I know about Matt, knowing him for 20 years. I could really tailor these roles to parts of them that I knew they could really deliver excellent performances mm-hmm. well i mean i michael uh, michael is just riveting you know watching him be so yeah, he's very intense so unemotional so intense of course he does get emotional at a certain point but uh, you know for 98 percent of the film he is just unflinching no facial expression just sits there. And I got to tell you, that third act with the prison scene with Michael and Stephen McCaddy just sitting there with McCaddy going into this really incredible, it boils down to a monologue. You just cannot, you cannot look away from that scene. That is like a master class in acting for that one scene. Yeah, that was, that was an incredible scene to film. Like while it was happening, we all knew this is this is special. Especially seeing McCaddy. I mean, his eyes and his intensity is just—it's out of this world. I, I could hardly keep eye contact with him when I would be directing him because he's so intense. I wanted to just start crying. Yeah, because it's just like you know, it's hard to look a guy like that in the eye because he's got these steel blue eyes and, and he's hard to read because they're so intense. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with Michael, you know, he's my brother and he had that same look on his face, but I, you know, I'm so comfortable with him. But, but that, what I wanted to have happen with that scene was Michael's face doesn't change. His expression yeah. is what we've seen. But as we get more from his father, every time we cut back to him, we see that face a little different. Yep. It's a little sadder. It's a little, it's, he had no chance. And we learn, we get more pieces of the puzzle, and we just feel so sorry for his character. And he's just, you know, he was he was never going to be okay yeah. from where he came from, and, and and we know that now. And you know, it's 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 this interesting thing with editing. When I was editing it together, where it's 
you cut back to the same facial expression, but it reads differently mm-hmm. because of the information we got in between, and that was really fascinating. Yeah, no, it's it's just, I mean, that one scene, without a doubt, is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, it, it yeah, just, it's one of my favorite, too. It really just nails you to the wall. I mean, just incredible. So what was this learning curve like for you? Because this is your first feature. You've done shorts. This is your first feature, writing, directing, editing. What was that learning curve like? It was pretty crazy. Um, I had made short films, but I think the longest script I ever made was 15 pages. Mm -hmm. And I think on the first day of filming with this, we shot 16 and a half pages. Oh, God. So... So I had already shot something longer than I'd ever made on the first day. So then it was uncharted waters after that. Uh, and it was a little bit scary beforehand because you're responsible for a lot of money and, and a lot of people working on it. And this is a much bigger deal than a short film. But once we started, it, it never the pressure never got to me. It was just fun. Uh, it just uh, You have so many decisions to make that you can't kind of stop and think about the big picture. You're so focused on details. Mm-hmm. that you get lost in it and it, and I and I love that. I can't wait to make another one, but I I must say before we started I was a little bit nervous about I don't even know if I can make a feature film. I hope this goes <laughs> well, you know, because it's it's a completely different animal. Gee, that's something to think about after you already have guys like Robert Joy and Stephen McCaddy signed on. Yeah, you know, that's the other thing. These guys they've got over 120 credits each on IMDb. They've seen it all, and I'm like, geez, they're going to think I'm some, like, Bush League amateur. Like, what? They're, like, I don't even know what they're going to think of me. I hope I look like I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> well, the end result proves that you did know what you were doing, Andrew. I mean, you really did an oh, amazing great. job with this film. You know, so now what did you personally learn about yourself that you— with the making of going through this whole process of making Crown and Anchor, what did you learn about yourself that you can now take forward into your future projects, into your future directorial efforts? Well, it's a confidence level in trusting your instincts because a lot of this had to be made on instinct because the, the time was so small to shoot things. Some things we only got one take of, mm-hmm. and so you just got to, you know, uh, this proves to me that I have a an instinct for understanding what to do with a film and having things cut together, and so that that can give you a level of confidence that you can problem solve uh, quickly and effectively. So if I get to shoot another feature and if I have twice as much time, I'd like to think that that you know <laughs> I I can lean on this experience and kind of have the confidence to know what I want and, and know what I want to do and, and tell other people that, you know, no, this will work. Trust me. Because sometimes you want to say that and, and you do say it, but you're like, Oh geez, I hope they do trust me. I hope I said that with enough confidence that they, <laughs> they think I know what I'm doing. And now I think that I will have that moving forward. So now where can everybody see crown and anchor? I know it's opening well, in, it's in, in, Go ahead. Yeah, it's in Long Beach Theater. Yeah, I think it's playing at the Long Beach Art Theater in uh, September 12th, Mm -hmm. so a couple days. This week, yep. Uh, It's currently at the Plaza Theater in Atlanta, um, playing there for this week. It's playing in St. John's for its third week now. So the people there have really taken to it. Yeah, it's in the Cineplex Theater there in the mall, and and I'm so happy it got extended 
to the now third week because people keep going and, and word of mouth has been good. I think people are really happy to see a different, darker story set in their hometown. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Uh, and then it's playing in uh, in Oakland and Detroit and lots of different places over the next month and a half. It's playing in Brooklyn uh, on October 24th at the Nighthawk Cinema. People can go on crownandanchorfilm.com mm-hmm. and, uh, and look up where it's playing, all the screenings, and they can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and, and all the info is there. Well, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for joining me on Behind the Lens today. This has been a real treat to get to talk to you, especially after seeing this film. Uh, and I actually told your publicist, and she'll, she'll tell you that I told her this, that repping you on this film, repping this film, is one of the best films she's ever repped in 20 years that we've known each other. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for saying that. I just, a job well done. You've got, you know, technical polish. It, your production values are high. Your performances are incredible. What you get from everybody, but particularly from your brother, Michael, followed closely behind by Matt. Not meaning to create a rift between the besties, but, you know, I just got to say, you know, Michael's performance is indelible and it will, it stays with you after you see it. Andrew, thank you so much. I'll make I ho- sure to tell both of them that. Uh, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again and I hope you get to do another film very soon. Uh, yeah, it looks like I might have something going very soon if everything comes together and I would love to come back on. You have an open invitation, my friend, anytime. Okay, thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Thanks, Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Andrew Rowe, Crown and Anchor, crownandanchorfilm.com. That is all the time we have today. Next week, we have another jam-packed show for you. Uh, We're going to have director Leon Lee joining us and then the director of a new film, Five Weddings. So until then, don't forget Slam Dance Dig this weekend, downtown L.A., Ace Hotel. Um, Crown and Anchor opens this week as well in limited theaters. And for those of you across the country, pick of the litter. Guide dog puppies. Go see it. It's opening all over the country, wider every week, and you get special appearances by dogs. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 